the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll talk with Steve Mosier. He is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. He'll be joining us later this hour. And in the second hour, we'll talk with Giancarlo Canapara. He's a senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about lower courts and whether or not they're going to follow the very clear direction from the U.S. Supreme Court when it comes to abortion cases that they will uh, be called upon to decide. So that's coming up in the second hour of today's program as well. Well, it's not really news, but we are continuing in an excessive heat warning through Saturday. Now, that is news because it was only through Friday, now extended through Saturday. Portland hit 102 degrees on Tuesday. Not sure what the high will be today, but we're expected to be very close to that if we're not there right now. Um, breaking the old record high of 100 degrees set in 2020. That was the uh, the record broken on Tuesday. Well, the excessive heat warning for the Willamette Valley now extends through uh, Saturday, 9 p.m. means uh, every afternoon we'll see rising temperatures nearing 100 degrees. Also in effect through the, uh, through the day Saturday is an air quality advisory to for potential high ozone levels in parts uh, caused by the heat. Well, the coast will see a mix of fog and sunshine leading to cool temperatures in the 60s and low 70s. Boy, doesn't that sound just utterly pleasant, the 60s and 70s. Uh, we should finally see the cooler coastal air. It's pushing into the um, western valleys, and the first part of next week should be cooler. Sunday should start that cooling trend for Portland, and Monday brings highs in the um, 80s, and maybe showers on Monday night and Tuesday. I remember showers, moisture falling from the sky. Keep in mind, most rain chances this time of year simply never actually happen, but one can always dream. I've been watering in the morning, water, just the hanging baskets, the stuff that's most vulnerable, watering in the evening. And, boy, I'll be glad when I can just go back to, you know, every other day or so. Anyway, also, people in the Pacific Northwest are trying to stay cool while a heat wave this, um, uh, this week brings the hottest temperatures seen so far in the summer here in Portland. Relief from the stretch of triple-digit weather this month is likely to come in August, with temperatures appearing to hold in the 80s. Perfect weather, of course, as uh, 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 well, that's what I think anyway. Well, Portland reached 102, as I mentioned, on Tuesday, setting a record for the date and becoming the first 100-degree day for 2022. Today might rival that, as uh, might the rest of the week. The excessive heat warning in effect, as I mentioned, through Saturday. Well, the Federal Reserve raised its pivotal short-term interest rate to 0.75 percent. For the second consecutive month Wednesday, in an attempt to curb soaring inflation, it topped out at a whopping 9% for the 12-month period ending in June. We're all holding our breath for Thursday's report that will tell us if, at least by the old standard definition, we are in a recession. Uh, The rate hike, which uh, is the largest since 1994, is designed to raise the cost of borrowing across sectors, which is expected to cool off uh, the overheated economy. 
The relevant rate, called the Fed funds rate, now sits at a range of 2.25 to 2.5 percent, approaching the long run rate of 2.5 percent, at which the central bank's monetary policy is supposed to be neither accommodative nor restrictive. At June's uh, Fed Open Market Committee meeting, the Fed chair, that's Jerome Powell, said we have both the tools we need and the resolve it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. He noted that the Fed is taking a bold approach to restraining inflation, adding that it can't go down until it flattens out. While oil prices, uh, which are included in headline inflation numbers, have been trending down Slightly core inflation that includes the more volatile components of energy and food is still persistently high. Core inflation historically tends to be the better indicator of the true direction of prices. So we'll continue to follow the story as it develops either up or down. Well, the Senate passed a bill to increase domestic computer chip production with um, competition With China, the bill Wednesday aims to increase domestic production of these computer chips in order for the U.S. to compete more effectively in the global technology market. The Chips Plus or Chips and Science Act passed 64 to 333 and now heads to the House. The measure includes over $52 billion for the domestic production of computer chips and other technologies. We knew that if we didn't get there first, our rivals, chief among them, the Chinese Communist Party, would likely beat us to the punch and reshape the world in their authoritarian image. So says Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in support of that bill. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Tuesday said that the Justice Department will prosecute anyone who was criminally responsible for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to another, not ruling out the possibility of charging former President Donald Trump in the department's January 6th investigation. Conveniently, right around the midterm elections, Garland's comments came during an interview with NBC News' Lester Holt, in which the news anchor asked the attorney general if he... uh, Uh, would consider prosecuting Trump, even if it could tear the country apart. Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor, Garland said. I wish that were true, but that's a quote. We intend to hold everyone, anyone who is criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another accountable. That's what we do, end quote. I am a bit skeptical because he says we hold anyone, um, everyone, criminally responsible for their misdeeds. And we're not seeing that in this or other areas. Anyway, the interview was aired shortly before The Washington Post reported that the Justice Department is investigating Trump's actions as part of its criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Sadly, one of their chief witnesses that the, the big blockbuster that came out a few days ago, it turns out her witness wasn't quite as, um, truthful as she, led uh, members of Congress to believe. We'll perhaps have time to get into that on another occasion. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later this hour, a conversation with Stephen Mosier, Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. That and more coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, Steve Mosier, Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. Well, returning to the news, uh, some universities across America requiring compliance from faculty in the form of signed diversity, equity and inclusion statements as conditions for tenure or promotion, arguing that these DEI, these things that they sign, diversity, equity, inclusion, 
uh, documents across college campuses is a top priority. However, there may be growing pushback in some areas from faculty as well as from parents who claim the DEI agenda actually challenges the diversity of viewpoints and opinions of students within the college environment. Some say it also promotes a culture of fear and intimidation, requiring all faculty members to support a social political agenda favored by one segment of society, not only politicizes the university, but represents compelled speech, a violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution at a public university. Hiding in plain sight, Joe Rogan expressed concern Tuesday that TikTok, one of the most used social media apps in the world, poses a unique threat to America's data privacy and safety. TikTok is owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company. China's civil military fusion policy and 2017 national intelligence law requires private businesses in China to share information and data at the request of the Chinese government. Rogan said, I read TikTok's terms of service, something most people don't do. I went down a TikTok rabbit hole from TikTok's uh, privacy policy. He read, we collect certain information about the device you use to access the platform, such as your IP address, user region. This is really crazy. User agent, mobile carrier, time zone zone time zone settings identifiers for advertising purposes model of your device the mo- the device system network type device ids your screen resolution and operating system app and file names and types he continued so all your apps and all your file names all the things you have filed away on your phone they have access to that file names and types keystroke patterns and rhythms so they're monitoring your keystrokes which means they know everything you type rogan added uh, battery state audio settings and connect audio devices where you log in from multiple devices. We will be able to use your profile information to identify your activity across devices. We may also associate you with information collected from devices other than those you use to log into the platform, meaning they can use other computers that you're not even using to log into TikTok. They can suck the data off of that. That's what you're really agreeing to when you download and start using TikTok, he said, and it ends with China having all your data. Hmm. Economic uncertainty. Is the United States entering a recession or is it already in one? Well, that's the big question ahead of the Commerce Department's release on Thursday of the highly anticipated second quarter gross domestic product reading, which is expected to show that economic growth shrank 1.6 percent in the period from April to June. Saying, I'm disgusted, a school board member demands disciplinary action over pornographic books in schools. Well, the Chinese government has uh, targeted the Federal Reserve in an effort to undermine American monetary policy since at least 2013. That's according to a report released Tuesday by Republicans on the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. The report detailed the actions of several Federal Reserve employees known as the P-Network, whose foreign travel patterns and academic backgrounds raised concerns internally. One of these employees was detained four times during the 2019 trip to Shanghai as Chinese officials threatened the individual's families unless the individual provided them with economic economic information and assistance. Other Federal Reserve employees also had close ties to the People's Bank of China, Chinese academic organizations, and the state-owned Xinhua News agency, according to the report, the Federal Reserve's inability to counter China's long running and brazen actions is a national security threat. The Senate report said Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell disputed some of the findings in the letter in a letter to Ohio Senator Rob Portman, the ranking Republican on the Homeland Security Committee. More to come on that.
Citing a dangerous woke agenda, Senator Rand Paul's wife spoke out on the media's love for rage politics and how it endangered her husband. Kelly Paul said our liberal media love rage politics and her husband was endangered and others who won't back their woke agenda. Liberal media outlets continue to intentionally ignore facts and downplay violent attacks by the extreme left on public servants, she went on to say. Citing a ticking time bomb, President Biden is expected to have a call with Chinese President Xi Jinping this week, the White House said, calling the United States relationship with Beijing one of the most consequential bilateral relationships in the world. As U.S. officials double down on their warnings that China poses the greatest long term threat to U.S. national security. Kirby could not give a specific date and time for the call between the presidents, but said he expects it to happen probably this week. The call between Biden and Xi comes as The Pentagon and intelligence officials warn of the threat that China poses to U.S. national security. The National Counterintelligence and Security Center also this month warned that state and local leaders are at risk of being manipulated to support hidden agendas by the Chinese Communist Party as China seeks to target officials outside of Washington to lobby for Beijing-friendly policies at the federal level. In April, CIA Director William Burns issued a similar warning to raise, also noting that China has been a silent partner in Russian President Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine. No scientific reason. House Republicans slammed the Biden administration for continuing to mandate COVID vaccines in the military. Turning Point USA, the conference issued a scathing cease and desist letter to ABC News on Tuesday, calling for the Disney-owned company to retract the defamatory statements made earlier this week on The View or face legal action. The false statements of fact intentionally made during The View's 20 June, or rather July 25th segment were unquestionably harmful to the organization's reputation and brought the organization and its student affiliates into disrepute with the public, potential donors and current and future business partners, posing a significant financial loss to the organization, the letter said. There was an apology issued today on The View. Citing zero humility, conservatives are disgusted after Dr. Fauci says his common sense advice saved millions. On the freedom of expression, a Newsweek column calls comedian Dave Chappelle's stand-up show cancellation a victory for conformity. And in a Confucius comeback, colleges and universities across America shut the doors to their Confucius Institute over the past several years with growing criticism of the center's funding connection to the Chinese communist government. But some are now reopening their doors under a different name while continuing to accept money from the Chinese Communist Party. Confucius Institutes are typically found on college and university campuses, with few exceptions operating inside K-12 school districts. Their self-described goal is to offer instruction to students on Chinese language and culture as tensions between the Chinese government and the United States reach a level not seen in decades. And as intelligence officials warn the instruction on language and culture is merely a guise under which the Communist Party seeks to propagandize within the walls of America's classrooms. America says uh, recession is here despite the White House's denial. Tomorrow the numbers will be out and the uh, conversation will continue. Russia plans to discontinue um, use of the International Space Station. Uh, Russia has announced it will no longer take part in the International Space Station after 2024, instead focusing on creating its own orbital station. But there was a headline earlier today that suggests 
otherwise. Anyway, the decision to leave, which has been floated since 2021, appears to have been triggered by increasing strains in the relationship between uh, Moscow and Washington over the war in Ukraine and U.S. sanctions, including on their space industry. The International Space Station has been a continuous orbit since November of 2000 and is a multi-nation program operated by five space agencies from 15 countries, according to NASA, which plans to use the ISS until 2030. Samuel Bendet says that space cooperation was one of the most significant and enduring partnerships the West built with Russia over many decades. On a related note, there is an entire Chinese space station in orbit already. So that may uh, explain where the Russians will go. CNN reports that Roscoe Moss Chief Yuri Borisov told Russian President Vladimir Putin that the decision to leave this station after 2024 has been made. You know that we are working within the framework of international cooperation at the International Space Station. Undoubtedly, we will fulfill all our obligations to our partners, but the decision to leave the station after 2024 has been made, end quote. Uh, Borisov told um, Putin in the Kremlin-issued readout. Robin Gattens, director of the International Space Station for NASA, said that NASA hadn't received any official word from Russia about the decision to quit the ISS, but it's expected they will. CNN chimes in on the Biden administration's attempt to redefine recession, saying you can't fake this. Spencer Brown says that as the Biden administration furiously attempts to spin our current economic situation into an argument to vote for Democrats in November's midterms, the White House can apparently no longer expect assistance from CNN. During a segment talking about the White House's desperate attempts to redefine what a recession is, the CNN editor-at-large Chris Cezella, or Celeza and host Cassie Hunt had some fun at the expense of the White House's laughable attempts to paint a rosy picture of the Build Back Better agenda's effects. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to switch gears here in just a moment. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Steve Mosier. He's the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest points out in his latest edition of the Politically Incorrect Guide, this time to pandemics, that deadly plagues have ripped across the globe for centuries and always will. However, did you know that virtually every plague in history, from the Black Death to smallpox and the Hong Kong flu, originated in one place? In the Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics, Stephen Mosier, president of the Population Research Institute and leading authority on China, reveals the widely promoted falsehoods and politically incorrect narratives, not just about COVID-19, but about several global pandemics across history. Well, in the newest guide, the Politically Incorrect Guide in the series, Stephen Mosier uncovers the origin of these pandemics from the Chinese pox to the Spanish flu to COVID-19, all of which originate in China. The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics exposes how many of these diseases have been kept hidden or used for exploitation throughout history. Uh, Mr. Mosier is a leading authority on China who also holds an advanced degree in the biological sciences, explodes widely promoted falsehoods and politically incorrect narratives about COVID-19, the pandemic and much, much more. Stephen Mosier is president of the Population Research Institute, is a leading authority on uh, the subject of China. He knows China as few Westerners do, having exposed 
uh, as a visiting scholar, the monstrous practices of forced abortions and forced sterilizations. He became the target of the communist regime's crushing retaliation. His encyclopedic grasp of China's history and its present day politics, his astute insights and his bracing realism are the perfect antidote for the dangerous confusion of many Americans about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and its designs on the world, designs that were advanced by unleashing a pandemic. He is the author of numerous books and has frequently testified before Congress and published uh, in the New York Post, LifeSite News and the Epic Times. We are just delighted to have you with us today. Welcome. Uh, hello, Georgine. It's good to be back with you again. It is good to have you back. Now, let me ask you the question that some people are willing to answer directly and others uh, suggest, well, we really don't and may never know. What is the origin of COVID-19? <laughs> well, I, I, I said in February of 2020 that all roads led to the Wuhan Institute of Virology because at the time uh, they put the military bioweapons expert, uh, Major General Chen Wei, in charge of the epidemic in Wuhan because they had been doing gain-of-function research in the lab in Wuhan, because the idea that a bat, a bat somehow flew into someone's soup at the Wuhan wet market and it passed from bat to human without uh, human intervention is just nonsensical. There are too many changes uh, that were made to the genome of the coronavirus for it to be a natural origin. Uh, it had to come from the lab. And then, of course, I was canceled. I was accused of being a conspiracy theorist by uh, a group of people who were organized by the master conspiracy theorist of them all, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who actually, you know, with his $6 billion budget, uh, was sending money uh, to the Wuhan Institute of Virology through EcoHealth Alliance to collect hundreds of bat coronaviruses and to carry out gain-of-function research in the lab there to make them more infectious and more deadly. And of course, he may have been doing, Georgine, noble scientific research, just advancing the frontiers of knowledge. But I guarantee you, the PLA bioweapons experts said, America is going to pay us to create dangerous viruses in the lab. And they're, uh, they're going to give us the techniques to do that. I'm sure they were delighted uh, to participate in this program. Absolutely. You know, it may sound outrageous to some of our listeners to suggest that there would be a deliberate effort to develop a virus uh, that would react uh, in the human body as it has. But you provide in uh, in the book a history of how China not necessarily originated certain viruses, but how they responded to them and how the Communist Party uh, managed in a number of instances historically that gives us reason to believe that this is absolutely plausible and consistent with what we've seen in the past. Yeah, uh, uh, China under the Communist Party is the great breeding ground of pandemics. 1958, the Asian flu broke upon the world. A million people died. It turns out that it originated in China, in the southern province of Guizhou, in the southwest of China. Uh, did China, the Communist Party, tell the World Health Organization about a dangerous new epidemic uh, caused by a dangerous new virus in 1958? Uh, no, they didn't. They waited until it spread around the world. And a couple of years later, uh, they were called to account and they finally admitted, yeah, it began in China. Did the same thing in 1968 with the Hong Kong flu. It didn't come from Hong Kong. Uh, the people of Hong Kong were actually incensed by being blamed for it. it. They knew very well it came from across the border in mainland China. Once again, dangerous virus crossed over into humanity, killed tens of thousands of Chinese, and 
the World Health Organization was not notified by the Chinese Communist Party. They kept it under wraps until it had become a global pandemic, killing, uh, killing over a million people. But the real, the real interesting story here, Georgine, is the SARS-1 coronavirus. Okay, we're living through SARS-2, right? Uh, but SARS-1 of 2002, November 16th, a snake seller in Guangdong province in the south of China became ill with a snake coronavirus. He died a few days later, but not before infecting lots and lots of people. Thousands of people were dying in China over the next few months. Uh, what did China do? Did China tell the world? No. They hid the epidemic. They silenced whistleblowers. They doctored the data. Uh, they they uh, covered it up. Fortunately, before it could become a pandemic in 2003 and kill a million people around the world or more, the Canadian intelligence service picked up uh, wire traffic suggesting that there was a dangerous virus on the loose in South China. And uh, we put pressure on the Chinese Communist Party. They finally admitted that, yes, they had an epidemic. But you know who they blamed? They blamed foreign actors releasing a bioweapon in China. In other words, they blamed the United States in 2003 for releasing a bioweapon in China. Uh, does that, all that sound familiar? Because it should. That's exactly the playbook they followed in 2019 and 2020. They silenced whistleblowers. They allowed the epidemic to spread and become a pandemic. They deliberately released it on the world. They doctored the data. They said there's no human, there's no human to human transmission. You don't need to worry about this thing. Uh, they, they got the World Health Organization to actually lie for them and repeat those lies. And then when they were finally called on it, uh, they said, no, it didn't come from the Wuhan lab. By the way, you can't go into Wuhan lab and check. But uh, it came from the United States. They accused us of releasing a bioweapon in the World Military Games in October of, of 2019. So same playbook again and again and again. We should have been ready for something from China because China under communism is the great breeding ground of pandemics. And they did it. They've done it several times now. And I'm afraid if unless they're called to account, uh, they will be doing it again in the not-too-distant future. Well, before we move forward, let me ask you a couple of things because I want to make sure our listeners are, are, are with us. One of the criticisms early on in pointing to China as the origin of uh, COVID-19 was that this was an, an anti-Asian effort, that uh, pointing the finger was somehow motivated by racism. Can you address that? Uh, because I don't want listeners to to believe that this is uh, part of an ongoing campaign to, to denigrate Asians in, in China. Well, I always always talk about the Chinese Communist Party yes. and its military arm, which is the People's Liberation Army. And I always point out that the, the, the first, the primary victims of the Chinese Communist Party over time have been the Chinese people themselves. So when we talk about the misbehavior of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the Chinese Communist Party would like to confuse us and say, you're, you're attacking China uh, or you're attacking the Chinese people. Far from it. Uh, we're attacking you, Communist Party. Uh, which believes that uh, you should dominate not just uh, the Chinese people, but the people of the entire world. So we need to be clear on that point. Mm -hmm. But this is all misbehavior uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I often get asked, you know, was it was it a leak uh, or was it deliberately released? And the answer is it was both. It was it was developed in the lab. It was clearly engineered in the lab and they were working on a vaccine when I believe it escaped during vaccine trials in Wuhan, caused an epidemic there. And once the Communist Party leaders realized they had an epidemic in China, they deliberately allowed 
uh, people to leave China uh, carrying the virus uh, to places like Milan, Italy, and Madrid, Spain, and New York City in the United States. So, um, so it's both and. It was it was came out during vaccine trials, uh, but was deliberately released upon the world. But these are all the misdeeds, uh, the misbehavior, uh, the criminal activity of the international criminal terrorist organization, uh, the criminal conspiracy known as the Chinese Communist Party. I have another question I want to ask you on that line, but I do need to take a quick break. Once again, we're continuing a conversation with uh, Dr. Stephen Mosier. He's the president of the the Population Research Institute and the author most recently of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation this afternoon with Stephen Mosier, president of the Population Research Institute. We're talking about his latest book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. Just before the break, I was asking you uh, whether or not charges of uh, racism by suggesting that the Chinese people are responsible for the coronavirus um, is motivated by um, uh, disdain for them. And the other question I wanted to ask is whether or not there is a an obligation, if China had obligated itself to communicate with the World Health Organization, if it's just expected that that's how you would respond under these circumstances, or if they ha- are signatories to some sort of an agreement where you let the world know because you care about people beyond your own borders. Well, the, the, those are very interesting questions. Again, I would say that the Chinese people are the first and foremost victims of the Chinese mm-hmm. Communist Party since the Communist Party is killed. Oh, uh, you know, 70 million of them and persons and persecutions over the years, um, not to mention the deaths in the one child policy. Um, uh, absolutely. Any responsible government, any responsible government, uh, when it has a new and unknown virus on the loose, should notify the World Health Organization should notify the international community and take steps to stop its spread to the rest of the world. China, uh, under the Communist Party, did exactly the opposite. They stopped flights from the epicenter of the pandemic in Wuhan from going to other Chinese cities, but they allowed flights from Wuhan to go to Madrid and uh, Milan, New York City, Los Angeles, other places. That later became you know, hotbeds of uh, a coronavirus infection. So I believe this that was that was quite quite deliberate. Uh, the charge of um, of, of uh, racism is a red herring. I mm-hmm. spent two hours on the phone last night uh, doing an interview in Chinese with Chinese dissidents who are just on fire to bring an end to Communist Party rule in China and are just devastated by the fact that the Communist Party was doing dangerous bioweapons research in the middle of a city of 12 million people and then, you know, let the virus out and uh, lots and lots of Chinese people have fallen ill and died as a result of this misbehavior on the part of the, uh, the Communist Party. Once again, you have to add those numbers to the death toll as well. Yes. How is this current pandemic different from previous pandemics or is it different? Well, it's different because in previous pandemics, uh, they were true zoonoses. That is to say that that the previous pandemics, uh, the virus actually did come from nature and cross into people. Interestingly enough, Georgie, uh, 58 and uh, the Asian flu in 58, the Hong Kong flu 10 years later, uh, they were descendants 
of the Spanish flu back in 1918 and 1919. Think about that. The Spanish flu killed 40 to 50 million people. And uh, the pandemic in 58 and 68, those were variants of the Spanish flu. They didn't kill 40 or 50 million people because the variants were less lethal. And if China had told the world early on that it had a serious new flu, a recombinant virus that was causing you know, deaths, then we could have been ready for it. We could have been working early on an effective vaccine. Uh, we could have put travel bans in place. Uh, we could have done testing, but they didn't. They behaved totally, totally irresponsible. Now, uh, of course, the, the current pandemic is caused by a genetically engineered virus. So this takes it to the next level. And I'm afraid that unless we call China to account, uh, they will uh, in the future uh, do it again. They they released the most deadly weapon, I think, uh, ever released in human history. It caused millions of deaths and tens of trillions of dollars in economic damage. And they haven't been held uh, accountable for, for the devastation that they've caused. And, and I was very pleased yesterday, uh, President Trump gave a, a talk uh, here in Tampa, Florida, and uh, he called for a lot of things, but he called for the creation of a commission to hold China accountable. That's his word, accountable for the deaths and damage caused by the Wuhan coronavirus. Um, that's what we need to be doing, because if we don't hold them accountable, I'm afraid they're going to do it again. They can't get off scot-free. Well, that raises a, another question, I guess two things. What does our pandemic future hold? And are you concerned that our own government has exploited the uh, the pandemic for purposes beyond uh, public health? Oh, well, everybody used the pandemic to advance their own agenda. Obviously, Big Pharma used the pandemic to make uh, last year an estimated $100 billion uh, using vaccines that uh, really uh, haven't worked very well and caused a lot of, a lot of adverse medical consequences. Um, the uh, political types, of course, immediately when Trump put a travel ban in place, uh, and, and he was the second leader of a country to put a travel ban in place. So he put a travel ban in place uh, very, very early in January of 2020. He was only, uh, that was only three days after Taiwan had put a travel ban in place. Uh, Taiwan did, did everything right, by the way. They're sitting right there 90 miles off the mainland Chinese coast, and they know that nothing good comes from the Chinese Communist Party, so they're always alert to a threat. So when they learned of a new epidemic in Wuhan, what did they do? They tested arriving passengers for 36 different viruses. When all the tests came back negative, they knew they were dealing with a new virus, and they put a travel ban in place. Uh, Trump was second to put a travel ban in place, and he was accused of what? By, by, uh, by Joe Biden. He was accused of uh, uh, racist, xenophobia, fear-mongering, uh, all of which were false charges. So, yeah, they're playing politics. Uh, a lot of that went into the, uh, the criticism of President Trump in 2020, who I think was, uh, was doing uh, the best job he could under, under very difficult circumstances. What was life like under plagues of the past and how do they compare to COVID-19? Obviously, we live in the 21st century. Things are dramatically different. But what was like life like before and how does that compare to this challenge we face today? Well, one difference, you know, for, for those of us who are, who are Christians is that in, in past pandemics, going back to the, the Antonine Plague at smallpox in 600 A.D., uh, also called the Plague of Justinian, uh, Christians were on the front lines. 
uh, they were caring for the sick. They were opening hospices and hospitals to care for the sick. Same thing happened during the bubonic plague a few centuries later. Uh, the churches were full of people praying uh, and, uh, and working on behalf of uh, uh, those who were ill. Uh, ordinary people um, fled the cities, but, but great saints like uh, St. Catherine of Siena stayed in, uh, in Siena and, uh, and ran a hospital and cared for those who were falling ill at uh, total disregard for her own, for her own health. So uh, this time it was different because the churches were not allowed to even hold uh, prayer meetings. Uh, we were not allowed to gather in our churches. We were not allowed uh, to do the kinds of uh, charitable work that uh, we had been allowed to in previous pandemics. Instead, uh, we were locked in our homes under the false idea that the Chinese lockdown had stopped the pandemic cold in China. Uh, we were the victims of a propaganda campaign that came from China. And I'm afraid that Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Birx fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. And the propaganda campaign was this. It began with fear porn, where you saw people, videos of people falling dead in the streets of Wuhan. You saw hospital corridors filled with body bags, and you thought, this is the apocalypse. This is the viral apocalypse. And then the next thing you heard from China was that they've locked down 60 million people. And they've stopped the pandemic in its tracks. Deaths have fallen to very low levels. Infections are way down. And uh, the Chinese propaganda apparatus was soon bragging that there were more people dying in New York City uh, than were dying in all of China. I don't think that was true, Georgine. I think that those numbers were fabricated uh, to make the Communist Party look good. But as I say, Fauci and Burks fell for it. And... Uh, and Burks went into uh, Burks and Fauci went into President Trump and said, "We'd have to lock down, otherwise millions of people are going to die." And look, China is locking down, and they've controlled the pandemic. And uh, they managed to talk the president into a two-week lockdown. But we now know that Deborah Burks thought that was just the camel's nose under the tent. That was just the foot in the door because she immediately went back, according to her own autobiography, and started uh, thinking about how to extend it—not just to two more weeks, but for months and months and months. Um, so that's that's what was going on. Uh, and it 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 put us all through two years of uh, pandemic hell. Yeah, it, we certainly did. We're going to take a quick break, but uh, we'll continue our conversation again with Stephen Mosier, author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. We'll be back in a few moments to continue taking a look at The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Stephen uh, Mosier. He's the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics, among other uh, amazing books on China. Deadly plagues have ripped across the globe for centuries. However, did you know that virtually everyone in history, from the Black Death to smallpox and the Hong Kong flu, originated in China? Well, in The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics, my guest, president of the Population Research Institute and a leading Authority on China reveals the widely promoted falsehoods and the politically incorrect narratives, not just about COVID-19, but about several global pandemics across history. Well, the next pandemic may not be the most devastating plague ever, but another viral uh, panic may turn it into one. Well, the book puts the risks into perspective, explores pandemics from prehistoric days to the present, and shows how we can better deal with the dangerous pandemics in the future. 
Um, there's now a consensus, a growing consensus, perhaps is a better way to put it, that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic originated in the Wuhan lab. And you trace the history in 1957 with the Asian flu and 68 with the Hong Kong flu and 2002 with SARS. And then uh, most recently with um, COVID-19, which is a, a type of SARS um, a virus that uh, China is seeking and perhaps used a bioweapons um, grade virus. How does the communist government profit economically or strategically from international plagues uh, or from not uh, reporting them, as has been the case historically? Well, I think I think that the Chinese Communist Party has an absolute uh, disregard for uh, human life. Uh, they don't think that individual human beings uh, have a, uh, necessarily even a right to life. Uh, certainly don't have uh, uh, any any rights that would uh, that take away from the all-powerful Chinese Communist Party. I do think that when uh, uh, epidemics broke out in China, uh, they were unconcerned about it spreading to the rest of the world, uh, probably because they had the view that uh, that everyone, you know, that China wasn't going to go through this alone, that other countries should uh, should suffer as well. So I think that, that you can say that the, the Asian flu in 58, uh, the Hong Kong flu 10 years later, uh, the, uh, the SARS, SARS-1, which almost became a global pandemic, uh, all of those were, in a sense, deliberately released on the, on the world by the Chinese Communist Party's failure to complain about what was happening in their own borders to their own citizens with these new and deadly viruses. But, of course, the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic that we've all lived through takes it to a, a whole new level. People, people ask me, you know, did it, did it leak from the lab or did it, uh, was it deliberately released? And the answer is both, Georgine, because it leaked from the lab in this sense. Uh, they had the virus uh, already developed. Uh, it had been enhanced to be more infectious to human beings. And they were working on a vaccine in the fall of 2019 working on a vaccine to protect their, your own people because you don't want to release a bioweapon if your own people would be the first to fall ill from it, right? So they were working on the vaccine when it escaped during vaccine trials because China uh, doesn't use mRNA vaccines. It uses attenuated vaccines, which are weakened forms of the real virus. And sometimes when you use those weakened forms of the real virus, you can get the real disease unintentionally. I believe that's what happened. Uh, we have a secret speech by Major General Chun Wei. Uh, Major General Chun said in 2017, first, you need the spear before you can develop the shield. The spear is the virus, the coronavirus. The shield is the vaccine. Well, they have the spear and they were working on the shield when uh, uh, they speared their own people. And after that happened, and that we can call that a leak, leaked out during vaccine. After that happened, it was deliberately spread around the world. So it's not an either or situation, leak or deliberate release. It's a both and situation. How does an epidemic become a pandemic? Well, a pandemic is when it spreads beyond the borders of one country and goes global. Uh, I think the the World Health Organization has now declared uh, Dr. Tedros Capricis has now on his own authority, ignoring his own advisors, have declared, uh, has declared the monkeypox uh, to be a pandemic. Uh, it's clearly not. The number of cases is very small. The number of cases is limited to just a couple dozen countries around the world. But uh, 
I'm I'm not sure what you know. I'm not sure what's going on in his mind. Maybe he spells uh, monkeypox uh, M O N E Y, monkeypox, <laughs> um, because uh, you know he, the World Health Organization has raised a lot of money over the last couple of years uh, to deal with pandemics, and he's probably eager. He's probably eager to take center stage again. Um, maybe he has the Fauci complex. You know, Fauci just can't can't turn down a an interview. Hmm. Now, pandemics obviously kill people, but they can also kill kill empires. Can you talk about the potential that they have to do much more damage than uh, the individuals and uh, communities that are directly impacted? Well, you know what we're dealing with is is what uh, uh, we now know is an unrestricted bioweapon. That's a bioweapon that that doesn't kill people immediately. In the old days, we thought of bioweapons as things like anthrax. You know, a pound of anthrax spread over a major city would cause a million deaths within the next couple of days. Um, this is a bioweapon of low lethality, but it's highly infectious. So what does it do? Well, it, it, it first of all, it has plausible deniability. You could deny, as China has denied, that it came from China, that it was developed in a lab, and that it was deliberately released. China is still denying that today. Uh, even though uh, clearly all of those denials are false. Um, so, uh, and, and, and the low lethality, the fact that it can spread human to human asymptomatically means that it can spread very widely and infect a lot of people. I think, the, you know, the millions of people uh, who died from coronavirus around the world uh, and the tens of trillions of dollars of economic damage caused by the coronavirus make this probably the most lethal weapon, single weapon, ever released upon the planet. And, and again, if, if there are no consequences for the Communist Party's releasing uh, a deadly virus on the world, then the question in my mind is, why wouldn't they do it again? Hmm. That's an important question. When was the first time uh, that a disease was used as a weapon of war? Is this unique or is this something we've seen historically? Well, I mean, it's uh, we we can go back to the Mongol siege of the city of Kafra, which is a Black Sea port uh, run by uh, the the the, uh, the, uh, the the Greeks in uh, in about 1200 A.D. when the Mongols were suffering from a, a an outbreak of the bubonic plague, which is carried by rats. And what they did, they were trying to besiege and take the city of Kafra, and they used the dead bodies of their fellow soldiers. They put them into catapults and catapulted them into the city, which is a very effective way of spreading disease. And so the Greeks fled in terror into their ships and carried the disease to bubonic plague, along with the rats and the fleas that carry the, the plague bacillus uh, to first Sicily and then to other ports in the Mediterranean. And that's how the, uh, the major bubonic plague epidemic got started by an act of bio-warfare, the first one uh, really in uh, in recorded history. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments with my guest, Stephen Mosier, president of the Population Research Institute and author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll be talking with Giancarlo Canaparo. He's a senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll be talking about uh, whether the lower courts are going to follow the Supreme Court's lead on abortion cases that will come before them. That's coming up. We're talking with Stephen Mosier. He's the author of um, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. Just before the break, we were talking about weaponizing disease. And I, I wonder what your th- your thoughts are on the future of weaponizing um, viruses, pandemics. Is this the wave of the future? Clearly, China was in the process of trying to figure out how to weaponize the coronavirus. What do you anticipate we might see in the future? Well, China has a very active bioweapons program. It has really... Uh, since the founding of the People's Republic of China uh, 70, 73 years ago. It took over the old Japanese bioweapons facilities in Manchuria and has been going great guns since. Now with U.S. technology and and, uh, and with U.S. funding, it's taken it to a whole new level. Uh, the new high ground of uh, bioweapons research in China, according to the head of the, uh, the former head of the National Defense University, is the development of bioweapons that are ethnically targeted. All right, that are targeted at certain ethnicities uh, who lack uh, natural resistance to a to a particular virus. Uh, when when perhaps uh, uh, the people in China have a natural resistance, that what that is the new high ground. That's what they're working for is weapons they can target at perhaps Koreans, Japanese, uh, Caucasians, Africans, uh, which would uh, to which they would have a natural or acquired immunity. Uh, the other thing that I would mention, I wrote a series of articles about this in the, the Epic Times, was that uh, China's massive DNA collection effort uh, is also a danger. Yes. Because if they have your DNA, uh, they can see what vulnerabilities it contains, what sort of viruses would be lethal to you as an individual or to the group uh, that you belong to. And so I'm 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 very much opposed to, to sending... Uh, any of our DNA to China for so-called testing. And you cannot believe um, the, the companies say that the, the DNA information is kept confidential. Nothing in China is confidential when the Chinese Communist Party intelligence services and military wants to get their hands on it. Everything can be used, can be turned into a weapon. Here at home, we saw the politicization of a pandemic. Those who violated the quarantine or declined the uh, the vaccine had the full weight of the law dropped on them. You mentioned earlier that churches were not permitted to meet um, your thoughts on, on moving forward with the potential of future pandemics. Monkeypox, for example, already being declared a pandemic, uh, despite the, the low numbers, um, what we should prepare for and how we might respond in future to efforts to politicize and take full advantage of these political opportunities. Well, I mean, first of all, we have to be very alert, as Taiwan was alert, to dangers coming from, from China. Uh, we have to realize that they have an active bioweapons program, that they're building more um, high-containment labs. I can hardly bring myself to say high-containment because they, they're so leaky, but China is building more high-containment labs. They're doing more gain-of-function research now, and I'm afraid that looking in a test tube somewhere is the next generation of a coronavirus or some other virus that has been weaponized. So we have to be uh, alert to that possibility. Uh, we have to, if, if, if the next one that comes is a highly infectious 
uh, respiratory airborne virus. So we have to realize that uh, that we already have those. Uh, we have uh, the flu. The seasonal flu is a highly infectious airborne respiratory disease. And so we have to be prepared to protect the vulnerable, those who are immune compromised. Uh, if it's like COVID again, we probably don't want to close the schools uh, because it turns out Sweden didn't close their schools. They didn't mask. They didn't socially distance. They protected the vulnerable people in nursing homes, the immune compromised. Everyone else went on with their lives. And the uh, infection and uh, hospitalization rates for students remained low. Uh, the infection hospitalization rates for teachers remained low. And, and the kids continued to get an education over the last two years, unlike our own kids, uh, which were, uh, you know, confined to home and, and fell behind their peers overseas. So, so um, we have to understand natural immunity. Uh, Fauci apparently forgot about natural immunity. After talking about it privately at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic and admitting to Zeke Emanuel, who is the former health advisor to President Obama, that, yes, if you have the coronavirus, you'll have robust natural immunity, probably lasting the rest of your life. Um, he stopped talking about it as soon as the vaccine came out uh, because he wanted everyone to be vaxxed. Uh, I'm sorry. I had the coronavirus. I have natural immunity. Uh, I don't need uh, the vax. Um, and I think we obviously have to. Uh, this is goes without saying, right, that we have to stop uh, funding Chinese labs. We have to make sure that Fauci is not uh, sending money uh, through an organization like EcoHealth Alliance to continue funding this research, either in China or anywhere else in the world, Ukraine uh, or any other lab in the world, because it's dangerous. Uh, Gain-of-function research has to stop. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, we're going to make, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci made a bad situation much, much worse. Despite his statement earlier this week that, his decisions saved millions of lives. Uh, you know, I, that's, a, that's an alternate reality statement. I don't know how he can. Uh, he is the, uh, the oldest serving aide, I think, to President Biden. The only aide, I think, who is older than President Biden himself. Mm. Well, you mentioned earlier that there was a role played by Christians in past pandemics. And while we want to not just think of our own self-interest, um, Christians have, have been singled out in some ways in this pandemic, in, in the current pandemic. Uh, it, it, suggestions on how we might serve our community and one another. I mean, I mean vigilance is one way to go about that. Uh, in, in future situations like this one, where we were literally forbidden from doing so. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of the, the actions that were taken seem to target people who didn't vote for the current administration or didn't vote the right way. Uh, the big box stores were allowed to continue in business. Uh, the small mom and pop stores were shuttered and perhaps permanently. Uh, Christians, um, Catholics, people of faith uh, had their churches closed. And yet, you know, there were other other meetings that were allowed to continue, uh, other, other groups that were allowed to continue to meet. So, it was sort of one-sided uh, persecution of Christians using the uh, coronavirus pandemic as an excuse. And I, I do believe there was some political targeting uh, going on quite consciously. As uh, Senator Tom Cotton, a friend of mine, said, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci is a political activist in a white lab coat. And I think that pretty much describes the kind of advice that he, was, uh, that he is and was giving the president. Mm. Well, I want to commend you for the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. It gives us a sense of the history and what 
what we have learned and can learn from what we have been through and are still at the tail end of and what we might anticipate in the future. Uh, I appreciate um, so much of your writing. And I, I remember um, discovering you many, many years ago when you first wrote about China. And I had been there several times. So I appreciate once again your weighing in on this important topic and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. Well, it's always good to talk to you, George Ain. Great, great interview. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Stephen Mosier is the uh, uh, director of Population Research Institute and a leading authority on China. Up next, a conversation with Giancarlo Canapara. He's a senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the lower courts and how they're going to respond to the Supreme Court's directives on abortion. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the question has arisen, will the lower courts follow the Supreme Court's lead in abortion cases? Well, that's the question raised by Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, where the Supreme Court declared that the federal courts should retreat from their invasion of the Democratic provinces of legislatures on the issue of abortion. But will the lower court obey or courts, plural? So writes my next guest and his colleague on the subject. Giancarlo Canapara is a senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese uh, Third Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He joins us today to talk about uh, what to keep an eye on with regard to the lower courts and the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us. This My is, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is such an important question because as we're watching the fallout from the Supreme Court's decision, there are various areas that we might miss if we're not attentive to what's happening. You in the article that you wrote along with your colleague, um, Sarah Partial Perry, uh, point out a particular appellate court that has, in fact, followed the Supreme Court's lead. Let me ask you, first of all, how much flexibility do the lower courts have in interpreting uh, what the Supreme Court has ruled and how they have advised the lower courts. Well, thankfully, the Supreme Court was very clear in the Dobbs opinion that uh, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are overruled. It's not always very clear when it's overruling precedent, but it was very clear there. And what that means is that uh, issues of abortion are back to the democratic processes. So that does not leave lower courts with a lot, lower federal courts with a lot of room to uh, ignore the Supreme Court, even if they want to. Uh, And that's what we saw in this case uh, with the 11th Circuit. Uh, It had an abortion case uh, arising out of Georgia's statute, uh, which uh, forbid abortions after a certain period of time, but made exceptions, of course, for miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. Um, and uh, challengers of the law, the court said, look, you're, you, know, you can't challenge this anymore uh, on these substantive due process grounds. Substantive due process is just the idea that, that uh, courts can create and enforce rights uh, as they see fit. Uh, but uh, so they were out of luck on that point, and, and courts will have a hard time follow or trying to uh, get around the Supreme Court there. But uh, there have been other arguments made uh, about uh, abortion restrictions. And in the past, uh, courts have been very creative about uh, giving uh, abortion advocates uh, special treatment in the law, uh, bending usual judicial rules and uh, procedures so that their claims can be viable when 
uh, similar claims uh, that were not abortion would not be. And the Supreme Court also said, no, no, we're putting an end to that, too. Uh, look, abortion cases, from, from the standpoint of, of, of judicial, uh, the judicial role and the fairness and equality of all litigants in court, uh, abortion litigants are just the same as everyone else. You have to abide by the same legal rules and procedures. Uh, and the, the 11th Circuit said, okay, we're going to follow suit. We're going to do this. Uh, and what that means is that abortion decisions uh, out of the federal courts, at least in the 11th Circuit, uh, uh, the 11th Circuit is pulled back. Uh, we're not going to be seeing these fights in federal court in that circuit. They're going to go back to the people of each state. Historically, since the passage of Roe versus Wade, the lower courts have done a lot of heavy lifting in terms of imposing standards uh, that politicians weren't successful at um, at imposing or or passing. Uh, and, and so what you're suggesting here is that the court has made it very clear that the same rules apply uh, to this issue of abortion that applies to every other issue. And the, the bending over backward based on a so-called constitutional right to abortion can no longer be relied upon to do the work of legislative bodies. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, we were we were worried when when Dobbs first came out because, you know, there are a lot of activist judges in the lower courts who uh, really enjoy the power to uh, supersede state legislatures. Uh, and they, and they, they do that because they feel like it's the right thing to do because they know better than uh, state legislatures or whatnot. And there was some worry that Dobbs would, uh, there would be judges that would try to get around Dobbs when it came out. Uh, but I think what we saw from this decision on the 11th Circuit is that Dobbs just made that impossible. The Supreme Court was very clear. Uh, that, the, that the courts are no longer in the business uh, of inventing this constitutional right. Uh, and uh, these sorts of rights determinations are going to have to be made by the democratic processes. Now, the 11th Circuit uh, bowed to the the instruction of the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm thinking about other uh, other circuits, other areas around the country. Are you optimistic that this is an example that we'll see elsewhere of the Ninth Circuit comes to mind? Um, are we, are well, we likely to see this this kind of rightful um, acquiescence to the Supreme Court and its clear instruction? Uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit is always a wild card. You never know what they're going to do. My sense is the Ninth Circuit is going to try very hard uh, to uh, to ignore this ruling or circumvent it. Or uh, what what's more likely to happen, uh, frankly, is that the Ninth Circuit will continue to allow litigants in abortion cases to uh, bend the normal rules of, uh, of uh, uh, court practice. Uh, and so they'll probably uh, escape that way in the Ninth Circuit. But I imagine that um, the Supreme Court will not look favorably on that kind of, kind of thing. Well, what we should watch for in Georgia following the, the ruling of the 11th Circuit Court's uh, decision, their right decision conforming to the new uh, standards, um, is that the people will ultimately be called upon to make decisions about how the practice of abortion is either allowed, not allowed, or uh, under what um, what rules it will be permitted. Uh, is that the, the correct thing to watch for in Georgia? And what should we look for in the other circuits as similar cases are likely to come up? Yeah, I think that the 11th Circuit decision is something of a signaling effect for the rest of the country. I think that uh, what we're going to see is, like you said, uh, abortion is going to be decided in the democratic process. People are going to uh, 
come together in their state legislatures. They're going to have to reach consensuses. Uh, There may be efforts to amend the state constitutions to accomplish one thing or another. Uh, But, you know, ultimately, that's a really good good thing. Mm -hmm. It is a good thing that this sort of really contentious debate is put into into circulation, if you will, in democratic processes where people can reach compromise, where they can talk to people about these issues that they disagree with and come to uh, outcomes that, uh, you know, we can all live with that we get to pick that aren't just in our life tenured judges. Well, that will require a level of vigilance on the part of the electorate, paying attention to what's happening in the legislature, being engaged. I think for many of us, we thought with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, that would be that. We could walk away and, and turn our attention to other things. Um, but the, the battle lines are being drawn a bit differently. We have the opportunity and the freedom, finally, uh, to influence decisions in our respective states. And I hope people will take that uh, that privilege seriously and will under, undertake to uh, to be uh, men and women of influence. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Thank you. Again, Giancarlo Canaparo is a senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, talking about the lower courts and uh, the parameters that were set up for them in the Dobbs decision. The Supreme Court made it very clear what they can and cannot do. Um, my guess is we'll see some rebel uh, circuits. I mentioned the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, but the people now will decide what will happen in their states. And uh, the courts should not attempt to play a role that the legislature has been called to. All right. Coming up, the final segment of today's program, we're going to talk about a new effort to, um, well, make us more of a welfare state. We'll explain in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the House Committee on Education and Labor is expected this week to consider legislation. It's known as the Healthy Meals, Healthy Kids Act. Now, who in their right mind could oppose Healthy Meals, Healthy Kids Act? It just sounds good. Well, H.R. 8450 is a um, wish list from the left. It seeks to expand welfare for all through universal free school meals and trying to use the school meals program as a pretext to push an environmental labor social justice policy embraced by the left. And there are many provisions in the legislation I would consider egregious, but here are a couple of them that I would consider among the worst. The first is welfare for all. Now, is that what you envision for your sons and daughters, your grandchildren moving forward under the, uh, uh, the, the thumb of the state? Um, the legislation is a blatant attempt to expand welfare for everyone, including the wealthy. And the Healthy Healthy Hunger Kids Act of 2010, a, a controversial provision was in, in, uh, uh, included, known as the Community Eligibility Provision. If 40% of students within a school or school district are deemed to be from low-income households, then all of the kids within the school or school district can receive free meals. Question is, why? Why would you? Anyway, well, the Obama administration that was um, overseeing at the time, their Department of Agriculture then improperly expanded that provision to allow a subset of schools within a school district to be grouped together to trigger free meals. Uh, Therefore, it's possible for a school with a significant low income population to be grouped with a school with not a single low income student. And both schools could um, provide free meals to every student within those schools, regardless of income. 
Now, for years, critics of the community eligibility provision rightly claimed that it was just a scheme to create universal free school meals. Now there's no pretense otherwise. Uh, The proposed legislation would reduce the already low 40 percent threshold number to just 25 percent and create a statewide community eligibility provision. Well, the community eligibility provision is purportedly a means to ensure uh, that um, children who are eligible to receive free meals do, in fact, receive those meals. Now, there are other ways to do that by identifying those students and providing meals for them. No one disagrees with that. But supposedly it wasn't intended to be a scheme simply to provide free meals to everyone and create universal free school meals. But that's what the provision already does to a significant extent. And this proposed bill would take a huge step in making universal free school meals a reality. The other is um, the values that are tethered to this. As mentioned, the school meals program is being used as a pretext to push unrelated ideological objectives with children as pawns in the game. Title VI of the bill has two provisions that are especially alarming. Section 601 is titled Values Aligned Procurement. Currently, under existing law, the Agriculture Department is supposed to encourage the purchase of locally grown and locally raised unprocessed agricultural products. The bill would change that procurement policy to integrate values that would encourage the purchase of such products that are produced in an environmentally sustainable manner by a certified organic farm or ranch, by a farm with employees who, as permitted by the law, are represented by a collective bargaining agreement or a a memorandum of understanding, by a farm participating in a worker justice certification program, by a farm participating in an independent animal welfare certification program. In other words, your local farm may not qualify under this uh, series of requirements, only those who conform to a certain set of ideas. Clearly, values simply uh, mean those consistent with left-wing environmental, labor, and or social justice agendas, among other things. Another provision under Title VI of the bill, Section 604, would create a pilot program for schools to create 100% plant-based food options. You might recall under Michelle Obama how popular that was with students who simply chose not to eat the food. Uh, That pilot program would likely be the start of a a permanent one. It's a dietary experiment on kids. School meals are supposed to be based on the federal meal standard, which are required to be consistent with the federal dietary guidelines. But this provision would ignore that. Um, All students would be required to have these meals that would be defined by the state and would be uh, plant-based. Uh, as an uh, aside, Congress should move away from the prescriptive federal standards and instead allow the food provided at local schools to be determined by parents and local communities. But of course, they can't be trusted with such important decisions. And that's why you want to rest the uh, the uh, opportunity, um, the right of parents to feed their own kids at school and allow the state to do that because after all, they know best. That's not what's happening here with the plant-based diet experiment. Congress would be promoting a specific diet it favors for ideological objectives. Now, this isn't unlike the environmental extremists who've been trying to change the dietary guidelines so that nutrition is based on environmental concerns as much as the dietary needs of humans. In general, this proposed legislation would turn a means-tested welfare program into one that doesn't even bother to look at means Uh, meaning need, it uses a program designed to help kids as a way to push unrelated ideological objectives. The bill is also a slap in the face of American farmers and ranchers and littered with policies that reflect a rejection of American agricultural practices from how crops are grown to how animals are treated. It's yet another effort 
to use federal policy to promote an anti-meat agenda, including by trying to indoctrinate kids into being anti-meat and to eat accordingly. The Congress does, uh, does need to make changes to school meals, but it needs to make changes that help kids, um, uh, the kids in the program, um, they are intended to serve and not the extremists who want to use school meals for their social engineering and to achieve their own ends. But that's where the program currently lies. Well, we are continuing to be under an excessive heat warning here in the Willamette Valley. It now is being extended through Saturday at 9 p.m., meaning that every afternoon we'll see rising temperatures nearing 100 degrees, triple digits. Also in effect through Saturday uh, is an air quality advisory for a potential high ozone levels in parts caused by the heat. While the uh, coast will see a mix of fog and sunshine leading to cool temperatures in the 60s and low 70s into the weekend, so you might find a lot of people hanging out there. We should finally see that cooler coastal air coming into the western valleys the first part of next week. So if you can hang out that long, you might make it okay. Sunday should be a little bit cooler for Portland, and Monday brings um, highs in the 80s. Remember the comfort of the 80s? And maybe a shower on Monday night and Tuesday. Keep in mind, most rain chances this time of year simply never develop, but keep an eye out. So uh, that's what we can expect. And they're telling us that August is likely going to bring some relief after this uh, current heat wave. So that's what to expect over the next several days. That uh, heat advisory extended through Saturday. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.